How the Curse of Sykes-Picot Still Haunts the Middle East by Robin Wright, April 30th, 2016. In the Middle East, few men are pilloried these days, as much as Sir Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot. Sykes, a British di diplomat, traveled the same turf as T.E. Lawrence of Arabia, served in the Boer War, inherited a baronetcy, and won a conservative seat in Parliament. He died young at 39 during the 1919 flu epidemic. Picot was a French lawyer and diplomat who led a long but obscure life, mainly in backwater posts, until his death in 1950. But the two men live on in the secret agreement they were assigned to draft during the First World War to divide the Ottoman Empire's vast landmass into British and French spheres of influence. The Sykes-Picot Agreement launched a nine-year process and other deals, declarations, and treaties that created the modern Middle East states out of the Ottoman carcass. The new borders ultimately bore little resemblance to the original Sykes-Picot map, but their map is still viewed as the root cause of much that has happened ever since. Hundreds of thousands have been killed because of the Sykes-Picot and all the problems it created. Nazar Hadi Moulud, the governor of Iraq's Erbil province, told me when I saw him this spring. It changed the course of history and nature. May 16th will mark the agreement's 100th anniversary amid questions over whether its borders can survive the region's current furies. The system in place for the past 100 years has collapsed. Barem Saleh, a former deputy prime minister of Iraq, declared at the Suleimani Forum in Iraqi Kurdistan in March. It's not clear what new system will take its place. The colonial carve-up was always vulnerable. Its map ignored local identities and political preferences. Borders were determined with a ruler arbitrarily. At a briefing for Britain's Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith in 1915, Sykes famously explained, I would like to draw a line from the E in Acre to the last K in Kirkuk. He slid his finger across a map, spread out on a table at number 10 Downing Street, from what is today a city on Israel's Mediterranean coast to the northern mountains of Iraq. Sykes-Picot was a mistake for sure, Zikri Mosa, an advisor to Kurdistan's President Masoud Barzani told me. It was like a forced marriage. It was doomed from the start. It was immoral because it decided people's future without asking them. For a century, the bitter reaction to the Sykes-Picot process has been reflected in the most politically powerful ideologies to emerge. Nasserism in Egypt and Baathism in Iraq and Syria. Based on a single nationalism covering the entire Arab world, for three years, Egypt and Syria, despite being on different continents, actually tried it. 
By merging into the United Arab Republic, the experiment disintegrated after a 1961 coup in Damascus. Even the Islamic State seeks to undo the old borders. After sweeping across Syria and Iraq in 2014, Caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi announced, This blessed advance will not stop until we hit the last nail in the coffin of the Sykes-Picot conspiracy. Yet the premise of American policy and of every other outside power today in stabilizing fractious Iraq, ending Syria's gruesome civil war, and confronting the Islamic State, is to preserve the borders associated with Sykes-Picot. Since August 2014, the United States has invested more than $11 million a day in military operations, including almost 9,000 airstrikes on Iraq and more than 5,000 on Syria. For the world's worst humanitarian refugee crisis, which is now spilling out of Syria across countries and continents, Washington has pledged $700 million in 2016, with more promised. The rest of the world, from Europe to the Gulf shakedoms, Russia to Iran, has poured billions into perpetuating the borders, even as they be for different political outcomes. In its final months in office, the Obama administration is intensifying that strategy. Since April 8th, senior officials, Vice President Joe Biden, Secretary of State John Kerry, and Defense Secretary Ash Carter have made surprise visits to Baghdad to prop up Iraq's increasingly fragile government. Baghdad's political crisis predates its war with ISIS. Recent debates in Parliament have disintegrated into brawls and water bottle fights. Dozens of lawmakers held a sit-in this month to demand the resignation of their speaker. Tens of thousands have demonstrated in several provinces for months to demand political and economic reforms, as well as to end an end to rampant corruption. On Saturday, protesters breached fortified blast walls around the Green Zone, bringing down a section as if it were the Berlin Wall, and stormed Parliament. Reuters reported that the demonstrators waved flags, danced in the aisles, and chanted, The cowards ran away! of fleeing lawmakers who had once again failed to reach a quorum for a vote on a new cabinet of technocrats to replace the current top officials, who were chosen according to quotas based on sect and ethnicity. Iraq declared a state of emergency and closed all roads into the capital. The U.S. Embassy, the U.N. Mission, and other embassies inside the Green Zone were on lockdown. Now is not the time for government gridlocking or bickering, President Obama said earlier this month. Biden's visit focused on encouraging Iraqi national unity, the White House said. But Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi increasingly risks becoming Iraq's Humpty Dumpty. The United States is upping its military footprint too. 
On April 18th, President Obama announced the deployment of Apache helicopters, sophisticated mobile rockets, and another 200 troops to Iraq. The total is now around 5,000 American forces. Airstrikes are up 60% this year over the same period last year. The situation is even worse in Syria, as the United States ratchets up its role there too. The peace talks launched in January are precarious at best, after three unsuccessful rounds. The ceasefire collapsed in an explosion of fighting this week, especially around Aleppo, Syria's largest city and its former commercial capital. On Monday, Obama called for another 250 U.S. special forces to be sent to Syria to boost the 50 already there and keep up the momentum. It's the largest expansion in the U.S. role since the Civil War erupted in 2011. The United States claims progress in the military campaign against the Islamic State. Since November, ISIS's pseudo-caliphate has lost 40% of its territory in Iraq and 10% in Syria, as well as tens of thousands of fighters, tons of arms, and hundreds of millions of dollars stored in warehouses that have been bombed by the U.S.-led coalition. Pentagon officials said last week that the number of new ISIS recruits in Iraq and Syria has plunged, from 1,500 a month last year to 200 a month now. ISIS fighters are dying faster than they can be replaced. For the first time, ISIS no longer seems invincible. The region is now beginning to appear nervously beyond both the political chaos and the challenge from ISIS. There's a well-rooted fear that both Iraq and Syria, an area stretching from the Mediterranean to the Gulf, have become so frail that they may not be sustainable, regardless of whether ISIS is defeated. It's the subject of political debate, media commentary, tea house chatter, and academic conferences. Can Iraq remain the same as it was the day before ISIS attacked? No, I believe not. John Kubis, the UN representative for Iraq, said at the Soleimani Forum. People must understand that something was wrong when ISIS was able to sweep through the country. And something is wrong when part of its territory has been liberated, but people know that things are not yet right to return. The debate about Iraq's future has shifted since Senator Joe Biden wrote a controversial Times op-ed in 2006 proposing three autonomous regions for Shiites, Sunnis, and Kurds to have their own political space. After 13 years of war, the fabric of the young nation is threadbare. Iraq, in its current form, is less than a century old. Saddam Hussein ruled it for a quarter of its existence. Since his ouster, Baghdad has not devised a political formula to ensure that its disparate constituencies feel invested in saving the country as is. The economy of a major oil producer has also been hit by the crippling mix, grossly wasteful mismanagement, 
a bureaucracy bloated by unqualified personnel, escalating greed, a 500% budget increase since 2004, and plummeting oil prices. Nationalism has unraveled. Iraqis take great pride in their land's ancient civilization. It's the connection with their present state that is the existential challenge. In Syria, the sheer physical and human devastation undermines the prospects of a viable state for years to come. The stats are almost incomprehensible. More than half the population depends on humanitarian aid to make it through the day. Some 3 million kids are not attending school, in a population of 22 million. Besides a staggering death toll, one and a half million people have been injured or permanently disabled. Life expectancy is down 15 years from when the Civil War started in 2011. Almost one out of five citizens has fled the country altogether. They may have little incentive to return. Physical destruction totals at least $250 billion in a state the size of Washington. And it increases every day. A century after Sykes-Picot, the dual crises have stripped away the veneer of statehood imposed by the Europeans and have exposed the emptiness underneath. Iraq was managed by Britain and Syria by France with limited nation nurturing before both were granted independence. They flew new flags, built opulent palaces for their leaders, encouraged commercial elites, and trained plenty of men in uniform. But both had weak public institutions, teeny civil societies, shady and iniquitous economies, and meaningless laws. Both countries were racked by coups and instability. Syria went through 20 coups, some failed but many successful, between 1949 and 1970, an average of one a year until the Assad dynasty assumed power in another coup. Increasingly, the glue that held both countries together was repressive rule and fear. The outside world, led by the United States, has re-engaged to help salvage both countries. After its eight-year intervention, however, Washington is not eager to again assume responsibility for the political aftermath. We have to have real humility about our ability to affect the course of events, Brett McKirk, Obama's point man for the anti-ISIS coalition, told me in Washington last month. We have to be really careful before we get over-invested. We have to divine our interests very narrowly and focus very aggressively on achieving those interests. At the Soleimani Forum, McGurk foreshadowed other dangers undermining prospects of reconstituting the Iraqi state. He recounted an anecdote about an Iraqi leader urging a Yazidi not to focus on revenge after the ISIS slaughter of his people on the mountains of Sinjar in 2014. The massacre, along with the enslavement of hundreds of Yazidi women, was the flashpoint that led to the original U.S. airstrikes.
McGurk said, the Yazidi replied, they took my wife, my daughter, and my sister. All I have left is my revenge. McGurk warned, this is something that Iraq will be dealing with for decades. In Syria, the death toll is many times higher, the sectarian and ethnic divide at least as deep as in Iraq. The test in both countries is not just finding a way to recreate states more viable than the various formulations attempted since the Sykes-Picot process was launched. It's also rallying public will in the current environment. You can liberate, you can hold, and you can build, Saman al-Jumayli, Iraq's Minister of Planning, said at the Soleimani Forum last month. But you may not be able to sustain. Some of the political alternatives may be just as problematic. The reconfiguration of either Iraq or Syria into new entities could be as complicated and potentially as bloody as the current wars. The breakups of India, Yugoslavia, and Sudan spawned huge migrations, cycles of ethnic cleansing, and rival claims to resources and territory, which in turn sparked whole new conflicts some still unresolved years later. Civilization started here in the 6th century BC, Iraqi Foreign Minister Ibrahim Jafari said at the forum. We don't want Iraq without sex or nationalities, but we want Iraq without radicalism. We would like Iraq to be like a bouquet of flowers. As the chaos mounts by the day in Baghdad, that is surely an illusion. We don't know the fate of the people in this region, Salih, the former Iraqi deputy prime minister, told me this week. But for sure, this time, unlike a hundred years ago, when Mr. Sykes and M. Picot drew the lines in the sand, the people of the region will have much to do with shaping the new order. The problem for them and the outside world is that they only know what they don't want. They have yet to figure out which political systems and which borders will work. The historical context, Arthur Goldschmidt Jr. The Middle East has the world's longest history. In this area, many staple crops were first cultivated. Most farm animals were first domesticated and the earliest agricultural villages were founded. Here, too, were the world's oldest cities, the first governments and law codes, and the earliest ethical monotheistic systems. A crossroads for people and ideas, the Middle East has sometimes contained only one state or a single culture, but usually it has split into competing fragments. During eras of internal cohesion and power, Middle Easterners controlled remote parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa. At times of dissension and weakness, however, they were invaded and ruled by outsiders. When they could not drive out their interlopers, they adjusted to them and subtly made their rulers adapt to their own ways. The interplay between invasion and accommodation is characteristic of the region. In this chapter, I summarize Middle East history, the ancient empires, the rise of Islam and its civilization, 
The region's subordination to European control and the area's struggle for political independence. The ancient Middle East. Environment has shaped much of the region's history. As polar ice caps receded and rainfall diminished, hunters and food gatherers had had to find ways to control their sources of sustenance. Hunting and gathering as a way of life died out in the Middle East some 5,000 years ago, giving way to pastoral nomadism and settled agriculture. Archaeologists have found the world's oldest farming villages in northeastern Africa and in the highlands of Asia Minor. Many people migrated to the Nile, Euphrates, and Tigris river valleys, where they learned how to tame the annual floods to water their fields. As grain cultivation spread, farmers improved their implements and pottery. They needed governments to organize the building of dams, dikes, and canals for large-scale irrigation, to regulate water distribution, and often to protect farmers from invading herders. Although the nomads at times served the settled people as merchants and soldiers, they also pillaged their cities and farms. Even though sedentary farmers and nomadic herders often fought against each other, they and the city dwellers built the civilizations of the Middle East. The first states based on agriculture were the kingdoms of the Upper and no Lower Nile, conjoined around 3000 BCE to form Egypt, and the Kingdom of Sumer, which had arisen a bit earlier in Mesopotamia, the land between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Both developed strong monarchies supported by elaborate bureaucracies, codes of conduct, and religious doctrines that integrated the government system into a cosmological order. Their rulers marshaled large workforces to protect the lands from floods and invaders. A complex division of labor facilitated the development of writing, calculation, architecture, metallurgy, and hydraulic engineering. Semitic and Indo-Iranian Invasions The river states were disrupted and partially transformed by outside infiltrators and invaders. Sumer was conquered by peoples who spoke Semitic languages, producing Babylonia, which reached its height during the reign of the lawgiver Hammurabi, 1792-1750 BCE. Meanwhile, Indo-European invaders from the north mixed with local peoples in Anatolia and Persia and introduced the horse into the region. The horse-drawn chariot enabled the Hyksos, another Semitic people, to occupy the Nile Delta from 1720 BCE to 1570 BCE. The Babylonians absorbed their invaders, but the Egyptians expelled theirs and extended their empire into Syria. Internal dissension and external pressures finally weakened Egypt and Babylonia leading to a bewildering series of invasions and emerging states around 1000 BCE. As the Middle East's climate grew drier, 
Semitic peoples, including the Phoenicians and the Hebrews, migrated from the Arabian desert into the better watered lands of Syria and Mesopotamia. The Phoenicians of Syria's coast became the ancient world's main mariners, traders, and colonizers. They also invented the phonetic alphabet. Under King David, who ruled in the early 10th century BCE, the Hebrews set up a kingdom in Palestine with its capital at Jerusalem. Later, this this state split and fell to mighty conquerors. The Hebrews developed a faith in one God who, according to the Bible, appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and later to the prophets. Elements of this ethical monotheism had existed in earlier Middle Eastern religions, but the Hebrews' ideas, crystallized in Judaism, profoundly shaped the intellectual history of both the Middle East and the West. As people learned how to forge iron tools and weapons, they could form larger and longer-lasting empires. About 1350 BCE, Babylonia gave way to Assyria, centered in northern Mesopotamia. At its height, around 700 BCE, Assyria ruled Syria and even Egypt. Its Semitic successor, Chaldea, upheld Babylon's glory for another century. Then Mesopotamia, indeed the whole Middle East, came under the rule of Persia's king Cyrus, 560-530 BC. From Cyrus's reign to modern times, the political history of the Middle East has centered on the rise and fall of successive multinational empires. Persia, Greece, Rome, the Arabs, the Seljuk Turks, the Mongols, uh, and the Ottomans. Like Babylon, most of these empires were formed by outside invasions. External rule stirred up local resistance forces that eventually sapped the ruler's strength, causing the states to break up and fall prey to new invaders. Often the conquerors adopted the institutions and beliefs of their Middle Eastern subjects. Rarely could they impose their own uniformly. The Persian Empire of Cyrus and his heirs, the Achaemenids, was the prototype of this multicultural system. Sprawling from the Indus Valley to the Nile, the empire could not make its subjects think and act alike. Instead, It accepted their beliefs and practices so long as they obeyed its laws, paid their taxes, and sent men to the Persian army. The satraps, provincial governors, were given broad civil, judicial, and fiscal powers by the Persian emperor. A feudal land ownership system kept the local aristocrats loyal, and a postal system and road network, along with a uniform coinage, calendar, and administrative language also helped to unite the empire. Achaemenid Persia survived two centuries before it fell to Alexander the Great. Greek and Roman rule. 
Alexander's whirlwind conquest of the Middle East between 332 BCE and 323 BCE marks a critical juncture in the area's history. For the next millennium, it belonged to the Hellenistic world. Alexander wanted to fuse Greek culture with that of the Middle East, taking ideas, institutions, and administrators from the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, and Persians. This fusion did not occur in his lifetime, nor was it ever complete, but from Alexander to Muhammad, the Mediterranean world and the Middle East shared a common civilization. The centers of its cultural blending were the coastal cities, of which the greatest was Alexandria. Alexander's descendants in Egypt, the Ptolemies, ruled the, the country for three centuries. They erected monumental buildings, such as the Alexandria Lighthouse, one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, and the museum, Academy of Scholars, which housed the largest library in antiquity. Southern Anatolia, Syria, and Mesopotamia were ruled for two centuries by the Seleucids, who were the descendants of one of Alexander's generals. In the 3rd century BCE, the Seleucids lost control of their eastern lands to another dynasty descended from some of Alexander's soldiers, and Persia regained its independence as Parthia. Meanwhile, a new state was rising farther west, Rome. Having taken Carthage, Macedonia, and Greece by 100 BCE, the Roman legions marched eastward, conquering Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt. Once again, most of the Middle East was united under a ecumenical empire. Only Persia and part of Mesopotamia were ruled by Parthia. Like earlier states, Rome absorbed much from its Middle Eastern subjects, including several religions, two of which, Mithraism and Christianity, vied for popular favor throughout the Christian Empire. Christianity finally won. After his conversion, the Emperor Constantine moved the capital and Rome's economic and cultural center to Byzantium, renamed Constantinople. But the city gave its old name to Rome's successor state, the Byzantine Empire. Under Roman rule, commercial cities flourished. Syrian and Egyptian merchants grew rich from the trade between Europe, Asia, and Eastern Africa. Arab camel nomads, Bedouin, prospered as carriers of cloth and spices. Other Middle Easterners navigated the Red Sea, the Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. But Roman rule was enforced by a large occupying army and grain-producing Syria and Egypt were taxed heavily. Rome's leaders did not always tolerate their subjects' beliefs. Roman soldiers destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and many of Jesus' earlier followers were martyred. Christian Rome proved even less tolerant.
Many Christians in North Africa and Egypt espoused heterodox beliefs that the emperors viewed as treasonous. Their efforts to suppress heresy alienated many of their Middle Eastern subjects in the 5th and 6th centuries CE. Rome, and later Byzantium, had one major rival, Persia. There, the Parthians gave way in the 3rd century CE to the Sassanid dynasty. Bolstered by a powerful military aristocracy and the resources of many Hellenized religious refugees from Byzantium, Sassanid Persia threatened Byzantine rule in the Middle East. Early in the 7th century, the Sassanids briefly overran Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. The Hellenistic era of Middle Eastern history was coming to an end. The Islamic Middle East as an autonomous system. A new epoch for the region was marked by several major developments. The revelation of Islam to an unlettered Meccan merchant in the early 7th century. The unification of hitherto feuding Arab tribes under this new religion. The rapid conquest of the Middle East and North Africa. The conversion of millions of Asians and Africans to Islam, and the development of Islamic civilization under a succession of empires. Egyptians, Syrians, and Persians influenced the beliefs of their Arab conquerors, just as they had transformed and absorbed earlier invaders. Yet the rise of Islam led to new ideas and institutions, monuments, and memories, which continue to affect Middle Eastern peoples profoundly. The Arabs before Islam. Once the camel had been domesticated around 3000 BCE, bands of people began roaming the Arabian Peninsula in search of water and forage for their flocks. These early Arabs composed poems that embodied their code of values. Bravery in battle, patience in misfortune, persistence in revenge, protection of the weak, defiance of the strong, loyalty to the tribe, hospitality to the guest, generosity to the needy, and fidelity in carrying out promises. These were the virtues that people needed to survive in the desert. Their poems, recited from memory, expressed the joys and sorrows of nomadic life, hailed the bravery of their heroes, lauded their own tribes, and lampooned their rivals. Even now, Arabs recite these poems and often repeat their precepts. In Roman times, the southern Arabs played a larger role in the world. They developed Yemen, colonized Ethiopia, and crossed the Indian Ocean. The northern Arabs were relatively isolated. Some adopted Judaism or Christianity, but most practiced animism, the belief that every object, whether animate or inanimate, has a spirit. One of their tribes, the Quraysh, built a shrine, the Kaaba, 
at a small desert city called Mecca. On the main trade route between Syria and Yemen, once a year, the pagan tribes of northwestern Arabia suspended their quarrels to make pilgrimages to Kaaba, which housed idols representing tribal deities. Muhammad. In Mecca, around 570 CE, one of, our, one of the world's greatest religious leaders, Muhammad, was born to a minor branch of the Quraysh. Orphaned as a child, Muhammad was reared by an uncle as a caravan trader. Upon reaching manhood, he became the agent for a rich merchant widow, Qadia, whom he married. Until he was 40 years old, Muhammad was simply a Meccan trader, but he was troubled by the widening gulf between the accepted Arab virtues of bravery and generosity and the blatantly acquisitive practices of Mecca's business leaders. Often, he went to a hill near Mecca to meditate. One day in Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, Muhammad heard a voice exhorting him to recite. Despite his protest that he could not read, the voice, later identified as the angel Gabriel, ordered him to testify to the existence of a creator god called Allah to proclaim God's existence to the Arabs and to warn them of an imminent judgment day when all people would be called to account for what they have done. As he received new revelations, he began to share them in the community. Those who accepted Muhammad's message called themselves Muslims and their religion Islam, or submission to the will of God, the creator and sustainer. Muhammad's public recitation of his revelations disturbed the Meccan leaders. If the Arabs accepted Islam, would they stop their annual pilgrimages to the Kaaba so lucrative to local merchants? Why did God reveal his message to Muhammad rather than to one of the rich and powerful Quraysh leaders? The pagan Meccans persecuted the Muslims. After Muhammad's uncle and protector died, they could no longer live in Mecca. Finally, the Arabs of Medina, a city north of Mecca, asked Muhammad to arbitrate their tribal disputes and accepted Islam as the condition for his coming there. As detailed in chapter 9, the Hijra immigration of Muhammad and his followers from Mecca is, for Muslims, the crucial event in history. The Muslim calendar begins in the year in which it occurred, 622 CE, for it was in Medina that Muhammad formed the Islamic Ummah, a community ruled by a divine plan. Politics and religion are united in Islam. God, speaking to humanity through Muhammad, is the supreme lawgiver. Thus, the Prophet became a political leader, and when the Meccans tried to destroy the Ummah, a military commander as well. Buttressed by their faith, the Muslims of Medina defeated Meccan armies larger and stronger than their own, converted most of the pagan Arab tribes, and finally won Mecca over to Islam. 
In 630 CE, Muhammad made a triumphal pilgrimage to the Kaaba, smashed its pagan idols, and declared it a Muslim shrine. He died two years later, having united much of Arabia under Islam. The right guided caliphs and the early Arab conquests. Following the Prophet's death, his followers needed a new leader for the Ummah, although no one could succeed Muhammad as the Prophet. Abu Bakr was chosen as the first caliph successor. During his caliphate, the Muslims won back the rebellious tribal Arabs and deflected their energies outward against Byzantium and Persia. Under Umar, the second caliph, the Arabs routed armies mightier than their own, wresting Syria and Egypt from Byzantine control and absorbing Sassanid Persia. The Arabs conquered mo most of the Middle East in a generation and much of the Old World in a century. Many Syrians, Egyptians, and Persians welcomed Arab rule as a respite from Byzantine intolerance and Sassanid exploitation. These subjects were forced neither to speak Arabic nor to become Muslims, although gradually some chose to do one or both. The new rulers, often called the right-guided caliphs, retained local administrative customs and languages, and even the bureaucrats themselves. The Arabs lacked the numbers and the experience to govern their new empire unaided. Men who did not convert were required to pay a head tax in return for exemption from military service. Jerusalem, under Arab rule, remained a religious center and pilgrimage site for Jews and Christians, as well as for Muslims. Although Arab toleration of local customs promoted stability, the conquests strained the Ummah itself. The caliphs set aside some of the captured booty for charitable or communal use and put the troops on a payroll but the sudden influx of wealth led to unrest. In 656 CE, the third caliph, Uthman, was murdered. His friends suspected his successor, Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law, of aiding his assassination. Seeking revenge, Uthman's supporters fought Ali's backers in a battle that ended with mediation that favored Uthman's cousin, Muawiyah, the governor of Syria. He proceeded to name him Caliph, moved the capital to Damascus, pacified dissident Muslims, and made the caliphate hereditary in his own family, the Umayyad branch of the Quraysh tribe. The Umayyad caliphs who ruled in Damascus from 661 to 750 were more political than pious. They crushed their opponents and spread Arab rule to northern Africa and Spain, Central Asia, and what is now Pakistan. Many Muslims resented the Umayyads. One of these dissidents was the Prophet Muhammad's grandson and Ali's son, Hussein, who died during a revolt at Karbala, Iraq, 
in 680. Hussein's martyrdom led to a political and religious opposition movement known as Shiism. Even now, Islam remains split between the Shia, who accept only Ali and his descendants as rightful leaders of the Ummah, and the Sunnis, who accept as legitimate the caliphs who actually ruled. Sunnis now outnumber Shia in most of the Muslim world, but Shiism dominates in Iran and plays a growing role in the politics of nearby Arab countries.